We're in a series, of, uh, starting a series about Jesus. Uh, we're doing it on Thursday afternoons. We're going through primarily the Gospel of Mark and, and looking at the various aspects of Jesus' ministry. And in here, we're going through a series for the next probably couple of months on who is Jesus. Now, I have uh, little respect for a Buddhist who's trying to convince me to be Buddhist who doesn't know anything about Buddha. Buddha? Yeah. Some fat guy lived a long time ago. But I often talk with Christians who are pretty much clueless about who Jesus is. In fact, our movement has sometimes been dubbed Paulianity because we know a whole lot more about Paul and his writings than we do about Jesus and the Gospels. It's good to know about Paul. Great doctrine, great foundation. But who is this guy, Jesus? And so to prepare us for that, the past few weeks we've been talking about Old Testament characters because as we study Jesus in the New Testament, these names keep coming up. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. Today we're looking at probably, not probably, definitely the Old Testament character who is most frequently associated with Jesus than any other Old Testament character. King David. King David. Uh, Interesting man. As, uh, we, many people you say David, David, King David. People's minds either go David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. David's best moments, David's worst moments. And I often say wherever your mind goes, David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba, it may be more of a commentary on you than it is on David. We've all experienced that reality, haven't we? Where some people always want to remember us only for the misdeeds we've done. That time you said that. That time you didn't keep that appointment. And there are others who inflate us beyond reason, and all they think about is David and Goliath and the wonderful moments. Most of us really have had David and Goliath moments and David and Bathsheba moments. Maybe not in the same form. Some of you may have killed a giant here and there. But probably most of us have not had those exact experiences. But failure and success, regardless of the form, shape us, don't they? So as I think about David and all of the material, all of the stuff we know about David from reading his Psalms, from reading 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, reading much of the, even in the New Testament, snippets all over the place about David, it really boils down to two things primarily. David was a godly man. You can't read his Psalms and not see ringing out through that literature a heart that was totally given to God. A man who loved God. The second thing I see about David, he was an overachiever. He wrote 75 psalms. That's a lot. He didn't just kill other soldiers, he killed the giant. Whatever David did, he was a 110 percenter. And so Samuel gave us some insights into his childhood that may help us get a bit of a sense of who he was. The uh, first thing is, when God sent Samuel out to anoint the next, next king after Saul had failed, he said to Samuel, 
I was looking for a man. The Lord sought out for himself a man after his own heart. A man whose heart beats for God. A man who loves God. That who, that's who I want to be the next king. Saul, King Saul failed because he didn't have a heart for God. He had a heart for himself, which we will see in a bit. So he sent Samuel to this little dusty village south of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. Uh, I grew up rural. This is rural. This is real country. And here comes Samuel the judge, the big kahuna, the big guy coming to Bethlehem. What's he coming to Bethlehem for? And Samuel tells us Bethlehem's elders came trembling to meet Samuel and said, do you come in peace? Have we done something wrong? Are we in for it? What are you, this is a, what are you coming to this dusty little backwater town for? Because God sent him. God sent him to anoint the next king. Now, the people didn't know that. All they knew was that Samuel had come, the great leader of Israel, to this dusty little town, and he had invited the inhabitants, the, the citizens, to come. We're going to have a feast. We're going to offer sacrifice. It's going to be a great day. And especially, Jesse, I want you to come, and I want you to bring your sons. Didn't tell them why. So everybody showed up, and, and they had the big party and the dinner, and then Samuel said to Jesse, come on over here, you and your sons. I have a special task. And God had said to Samuel, I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. So Samuel tells us he went to the first son, big, tall, good-looking guy. God says, nope, not him. Well, bring the second son in. Nope, not him. Third son, no, I don't like his tie. Whatever it was, down he went. Something God said, I'm looking for this specific thing. Went through all seven of Jesse's sons. I don't know how Samuel was supposed to recognize him. This guy with his hair parted in the middle, I don't know. But he said it didn't work. And he said to Jesse, do you have any other sons? He said, well, there's the punk. There's the youngest one. But he's out with the sheep. David is kind of like crazy Aunt Harriet. We hide her in the attic when company comes. <laughs> David's kind of a weirdo. You know, my other sons, they're shepherds. They're guys. They're out there. They're doing it. David, he sings songs. He writes poetry. And, you know, we're kind of country people. We had good music. I like Willie Nelson, Garth Nelson, you know, Merle Haggard. That's our kind of people. That little twit, he'll come in here with his harp singing Jesus songs. No, I didn't invite him. Actually, I just forgot about it. I asked myself if I were David. And I found out this is the biggest event that has ever occurred in this dumpy little town. The judge, Samuel, was here. And he told you to bring all your sons, and you forgot me? I wonder if there's some part of David that says, you'll never forget me again, Dad. I'll do something significant. The second event, shortly after, Jesse's three oldest sons were part of Saul's army. And they were out fighting the Philistines. They were not actually fighting, hiding out of their sleeping bags while Goliath challenged them. But they were soldiers. They were out there on the front lines. And so uh, Jesse called little David in and said, Hey, buddy, you're, leave those sheep with 
the other shepherds, and I want you to take these sandwiches and this cheese to your brothers on the front lines. So David saddled up his donkey or whatever it was and headed off to the front lines. When he got there, his oldest brother Eliab saw him. And Samuel tells us now, Eliab, his oldest brother's oldest brother, heard David when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. Just David's presence made his oldest brother burn with anger. What was going on in that home? What kind of relationship was there between these older sons of Jesse's first wife and this young punk of his second wife? Eliab said to David, why have you come down here? Who did you leave those few dumpy sheep with in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. You insolent little pup. Who do you think you are coming out here to be with the soldiers? Who did you left those few little sheep with, the biggest job you Not a very nice situation. This young kid growing up. David's response to Eliab, what have I done now? That's the text. That's what it says right there in the Bible. What have I done now? I just asked a question. And then later, David said to Jonathan, Saul's son, when Saul was trying to kill David. David used these same words. What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin? He said to Saul, after he had spared Saul's life and Saul was yelling at him, David said, what have I done? What evil is in my hand? He said to Achish the Philistine in chapter 27, what have I done? What have you found in your servant? I wonder if David was constantly looking over his shoulder. Am I doing it wrong? Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Am I doing it hard enough? So to prove himself, and to prove his God, I don't want to take any of the good motives out of David. He said, who's this godless Philistine out there who's challenging the armies of the living God? And David said, I'm going to go whoop him. I'm going to kill him right now. And he did. And he became a great hero. And David's success created a powerful enemy. Although he was so effective, so successful, Saul even put David in charge of the armies. Says, uh, so David, David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war. David was very popular. Everybody loved David. David is the giant killer. David is the one who led the military. When they won their battles, David was in the front. And eventually he became so popular, the women would come out of the villages as the army was marching by, and they would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Well, if you were here last week, you'll know what it means when I say Saul's inner bramble raised its head. And what he actually said. He said, Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand, but to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And Samuel tells us that David was so successful because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of David 
but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So his success was his undoing. And for 10 years, David hid in the wilderness, going from small town to small town, from cave to cave, even at times living with the Philistines, because Saul was hell-bent on one focused outcome. David has to go. And during all those years, those 10 years, these were the years he would have been, in today's ages, he, he would have been going to college. He would have been starting a career. Instead, he was running for his life from this wretched, jealous old man named Saul. But eventually Saul died. End of 1 Samuel, the story of Saul's death. And David's wisdom and God's guidance turned David into the next king, and he was a great king. He was a marvelous king. It says in Psalm 78, 72, David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. These two essential dynamics of being an effective leader. He shepherded them with his heart. He cared about them. And then he guided them with skillful hands. He knew how to lead. Either one without the other makes a dangerous leader. But here was a man who loved his people. He shepherded them with his heart, and he led them with skillful hands. And so God blessed David, and David blessed God. David made it very clear who the king of Israel really was when he established God as Israel's king. He said, you call me king, and, and that's all fine. But one of the first things David did was bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to communicate to the people, this is where the seat of government is. This is where my throne is but this is also where God's throne is. And God and I will lead this thing together. And then David used this incredible statement, this incredible word about it. It's the, a word, nagid. Some of you have heard this word before. Nagid. Nagid. It means prince. The Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a nagid over Israel. And David continually used that term about himself. The Nagid is second in command. God is the king. And he's given me the privilege to be his prince. So David said, made very clear by moving the, the ark into the city and by using that term that God is the king. And I am his, what, chief of staff, I guess you could call him. And then God established David as king over Israel. Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, David said to God, I want to build you a house, a temple. I live in a house made of stone. You're living in a tent. We need to fix this. And God said, no, no, no. Your son Solomon will build that literal house, temple for me. But David, I'm going to build a house, a dynasty for you. And God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. The promise I made to Abraham over a thousand years ago, that all the earth would be blessed through one of his descendants. And now, David, I've narrowed this down to the tribe of Judah. I've narrowed it down to the house of David. That descendant of Abraham, who I will use to bless the whole world, 
will be one of your descendants, one of your sons. He will be the Messiah. He will rule the world with you in peace and justice and righteousness. Yes, David, you've made me king. But forever and ever, my only begotten son will be referred to as the son of God, but also the son of David. David succeeded enormously because he worshipped his God with his whole heart. But then in chapter 11, the mood changes. This wonderful, delightful, psalm-writing, poet, God-loving man was, after all, human. And one evening when his soldiers were off at war, which is a strange statement that David the great warrior was at home while his soldiers were out fighting the Philistines, and he took a stroll on the roof, and you know the story of seeing his neighbor, his friend's wife, Uriah, one of his mighty men, and he wanted Uriah's wife. And Uriah was away at battle. So David found a way to ruin his life. He committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. And then word came up that she was pregnant. David said, well, he's been away at war. We've got to do something. The timing on this just isn't right. So he invited her husband Uriah. Hey, you need a break. Come on home. He took him into his palace, fed him, gave him some wines, and now go home to your wife and spend the night with your wife. Uriah said, my fellow soldiers are sleeping on the battlefield. There's no way I'm going to go in my house and have a meal and sleep in there. David's plan was foiled. So he sent word to Joab, the general, and said, I want you to put Uriah in a particular place where we know he will be killed. So here's this great man of God. David, the psalmist, the man whose heart was for God, committed two great sins, punishable according to the law of Moses, by death. Murder, adultery, deceit, awful time, awful time in David's life. But David was smart enough to get away with it. Shortly after Uriah was killed, David moved Bathsheba into the house and she became his wife and they had to wait long enough for the morning but had to get it married so that the timing was right for this baby to be born. Very crafty. And David said, man, got away with another one. Got away with a big one. Nobody knows except Bathsheba and me. God and God squealed on him God went to Nathan the prophet and said hey your friend David is in desperate need you need to go and tell him what he's done well Nathan said a lot of jobs I don't mind doing but to go and tell the king that I know he has committed adultery and murder 
he could slice my throat just as quickly as he slices anyone else's throat. God said, I want you to go anyway. But be careful, because he's a dangerous man when he's like this. So Nathan came up with a story. He said, David, I got a thing. It's a, people come to me with questions, and I need your advice on this. This is a big one. There was a rich man, had big flocks, big herds, lots of sheep, lots of goats, lots of cattle. And his neighbor had one little ewe lamb that he treated like a member of the family. He loved that little ewe lamb. Well, the rich guy, the big guy with all the flocks, had company coming. So instead of taking one out of his huge flock, he went and took his neighbor's, because he had the power to do so, went and took his neighbor's little lamb and killed that, and they had that for dinner. Well, Nathan saw the flash in David's eyes. That man deserves to die, David said. Nathan looked straight at David and said, David, etta, Aish. David, you are that man. You've got seven wives and a harem. And you had to satisfy yourself by taking your dear, loyal soldier and good friend's wife and then killing him. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against him. Now, he could have said, now, Nathan, you don't get, you don't know how my dad was to me. You don't know how mean my brothers were to me. You know, Saul made my life miserable for all those years, living in the desert. I've had a hard life. You've got to understand that sometimes, you know, no, no excuses, no explanations. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. <laughs> if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You are not going to die, but because by doing this murder and adultery, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. There's forgiveness, but there's also consequences. And from chapter 11 through the end of 2 Samuel, it's a sad story of trouble after trouble after trouble in David's own home and in the nation. One of David's sons raped his half-sister. And David did nothing. That Tamar's full brother, Absalom, killed his older half-brother. That same son, Absalom, chased David from the throne and tried to pull a coup and be the new king. And in the ensuing battle, Absalom was killed. And David mourned him greatly. So yeah, there is forgiveness. But there was also terrible consequences. So which is it? David and Goliath? Or David and Bathsheba? And some of us will remember David and Bathsheba. And some of us will remember David and Goliath. 
But whether people remember your David and Goliath or your David and Bathsheba is important. It matters. But what matters most is what's God's legacy? After it was all said and done and David was in the grave, what's his legacy? What goes on after? Well, we get some clues here. David's legacy focused on his godliness, not on his failures. God said to Solomon, David's son, when he was being crowned the king, he said, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Later, in 1 Kings 9, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, I will bless you. At the end of Solomon's life, in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, Solomon was judged by God because his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Fifteen times after David's death, the scriptures record that David was a man who followed God with his whole heart. And so God blessed him. David's legacy was preserved because he knew how to respond when he failed. There are people who live with maddening, choking guilt forever because they don't understand God's grace and God's forgiveness. David was a rascal. He failed miserably. He did unseemly things. But when he failed, he knew what to do. And I put together a composite of three of David's, uh, sin, uh, David's uh, confession psalms. Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. A deep burning conviction. I have failed my God. That only happens when you have such a deep love for God that the sense you have failed him crushes your soul. I was on my way to Nepal in a hurry, heading out to the car to go to the airport. Jeanette was in my way, and I said some nasty, not nasty, I just mean things. I, you know, in a hurry, rush, running to the airport, and I, I got a call. We didn't have cell phones. Got a call. I got to tell. I'm so sorry. Well, I got there, everything was rush, 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 right into the plane, off on whatever long this flight is to Nepal. I'm in this rural, wretched, not wretched, rural. <laughs> yeah, it was wretched. Way in the mountains of Nepal. No phones. And that whole two weeks, I suffered. I couldn't wait to get home and say, baby, I am so sorry. Can you forgive me? I was such an idiot. Have you ever been there? I know most of you have been idiots at times, but I mean, have you ever just felt that crushing? You know why I felt so bad? Because I loved her so much. And to hurt her ripped my heart. And David said, oh my God, I sinned against you. Your hand was heavy on me. 
And then repentance, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, so that your word went right through my ears into my heart. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then I don't have time to do this, but these confession sins, how David dealt with his sin, it broke his heart. He trusted God when he confessed it, that God would clean him. Psalm 40 says, I, wait, I waited for the Lord. He turned to me, heard my cry, lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the muck and the mire. David said, that's what sin is. It's the muck and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand, and put a new song in my mouth. The difference between David and Saul, David who succeeded and King Saul who failed was that Saul didn't know what to do when he failed. David knew what to do when he failed. Confess your sin. Repent. Turn around. Commit to God. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And his legacy was he followed God with his whole heart, even though he failed. He got up and went on.